BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, when Laura Coates began her career as a federal prosecutor in Washington, D.C., she thought it would be an uncomplicated act of patriotism. She had worked in the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division enforcing voting rights and assumed she'd remain a trusted champion of people who looked like her. Instead, Coates says in her new book, Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness, she was often distrusted as an agent of a system that filled prisons with people who looked like her. We'll talk with the CNN senior legal analyst about the cases that led others, and even her, to change the way she saw herself. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. CNN senior legal analyst Laura Coates has a new book, Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. It's a collection of stories about the cases Coates encountered as a federal prosecutor in D.C., cases that are heart-wrenching, morally compromising, or that lay bare the prejudices and inequities of our legal system. The pursuit of justice creates injustice is the opening line in Coates' book, and it's powerfully reflected in the first case she describes, the case of Manuel, whose car was stolen. When Coates runs a background check on those involved in the case, including the victim of the theft, Manuel, as is standard, she learns he is undocumented. Laura Coates, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Glad to have you on. And this middle-aged man, Manuel, who had his car stolen, I want to continue that story a little bit. You you learned that he entered the U.S. illegally when he was 16. But in the 20 years after, he worked at a family, never broke the law again. But there's a warrant out for his immediate deportation, and you are instructed to have him arrested by ICE when he comes to court to testify as the victim of the theft. What do you do? You know, this story and and how I begin the book, frankly, I think many people think, well, it seems very counterintuitive that the pursuit of justice could ever create injustice. But in reality, stories like this really illustrate that very fact and how we can't just think about justice in terms of the pursuit of a conviction or perhaps a failed pursuit that ends in an acquittal for some, but rather the idea of what happens in between. And we can't think about the ends justifying the means in all cases. 
And this, as you say, was a man who had not so much as sneezed in the direction of a police officer since Mm -hmm. arriving in the country illegally and maintaining his status here as an undocumented person. And in that moment, you realize that this person was to be treated, according to the orders, as if they were the same type of, let alone, if at all, a criminal as the person who had stolen his car. The idea of the person who had stolen the car having a rap sheet that was quite noteworthy where you would want as a society to have accountability. And then this person who had done what we ask of people when a crime is committed, we ask for them to report the crime, to begin the process of accountability on behalf of society. And this, he found himself between this impossible rock and a hard place where either you report a crime or you risk continued victimization and having to consider one's immigration status in that calculus. And I don't want to suggest in any stretch of the imagination that the conundrum and the pain that I was experiencing having to be a part of this system in any way compares to what he was enduring. But it just goes to show you that Frankly, in those moments, when my moral compass pointed one direction, and I knew that an unfairness and injustice would be created by the pursuit of justice, it was immediately at odds with what the orders of the office were. And what do you do in those circumstances? And for me, I tried to as even go as far as to suggest, is this the kind of case that maybe we would be willing to dismiss because the imbalance would just be too much, knowing that wouldn't be a possibility and ultimately being instructed and having security um, looking at me as well to carry out the orders of the office and having to become his advocate in the moment in an unexpected way. In the scene that you describe when he is taken away is incredibly difficult to read. I'm wondering, though, if you could read a passage from your book. This is actually towards the end of the story of Manuel, where you talk about carrying out the order. It's on page 22. Certainly. Yeah, if you could read from where it starts with, I understood the gravity of carrying out the order. You know, and it begins, I, I understood the gravity of carrying out the order. I had a choice to warn him, not to inform the marshals, not to call ICE. I had the choice to take a chance and suffer the personal and potential professional consequence of disbarment for my disobedience. I had a choice, and I chose to follow orders. That's not the person I thought I was. After all, how could I, a Black woman, do that to another person of color in this country? How could I have a hand in oppression? Had I been just a prosecutor, I would have never have wrestled with the issue. Manuel had illegally crossed the border and ignored a court order. Wasn't that enough to diminish my professional compassion? But instead, there are many descriptors that precede my hyphenated America. A black woman, a wife, a mother, a public servant, a human being. But the law no matter how unjust the consequence, came first that day. And in spite of my offices lauding me a patriot and unflappable professional, I will question that choice for the rest of my life. That's Laura Coates reading from her book, Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight, 
for fairness. One of the things I was really struck by in reading your book is that it does not come off as a defense of your conduct. Just just as that passage there, you are still at this place where it is not necessarily resolved or really resolvable, um, as you describe. And I was really struck with that by that because there are stories in your book, like the case of a black man who was mistakenly arrested for a crime he didn't commit, but you were willing to believe him, even though everyone else sort of rolled their eyes at yet another defendant claiming mistaken identity. You could have started with those, but you started with this incredibly difficult story that could leave readers frustrated and upset at you. And so I'm wondering if that was in part your intent to, that this is not a book where you are necessarily seeking redemption for some of the moments when you felt maybe you acted against your moral compass. You know, I believe that if you're going to speak truth to power, you ought to know what the truth is. And I am not looking to self-aggrandize. Certainly it would be, you know, um, perhaps in more line with what I've read of others and the notion of seeking that level of never showing the warts, never showing the truth, only trying to demonstrate sort of the, the Al Bundy vision of, of oneself when you're thinking about how perfect you are and there's ego. I don't want that ego to lead. I want people to understand just how difficult these choices really are and to see what this legal system that aspires to be a justice system really looks like and the roles I have played within it. I don't suffer any fools in my commentary um, with legal analysis. And I totally did not leave myself out of the criticism. And I think that's the only way for people to truly understand what the system is like. And how I explore the different battles of allegiance, because I've never had the luxury of shedding facets of my identity at the door before I entered a courtroom or a classroom or a boardroom or a television studio. I've entered the room as I am, as a Black woman, as a wife, as a mother, as a human being, as one who is fallible. And I wanted people to understand that the composition of a person who is in the powerful position to wield discretion brings that entirety into the room. And what does that mean when there's so much power and discretion and unchecked at times and the autonomy and agency, what does that look like in an overall system? And I, I, I wrestled with the idea and I, at times, to be honest, thought to myself, gosh, do I want to be this personal? I could write a book mm. about, you know, a Supreme Court case and sort of yeah. work backwards or have a very intellectual approach. And I just was very intentional and deliberate about a personal narrative because I wanted people to vicariously experience not just what the law was and how you interpret it, but what it actually feels like. I wanted to see something and say something. And even if it meant that at times people would question, that's part of the point because I think in many instances in the chapters, which each stand alone, I've heard people say, you know, gosh, what was the alternative? What else could you have done given the choices? And ultimately the conclusion you reached was probably the only one available. And I say to myself, well, then I hope that informs you when, mm -hmm. there, when the alternatives do not exist. What does that say about this nation of laws? And in that chasm between what is and what it ought to be, where can you find reform? You're, you're sort of answering my next question, which is, you know, if you believe that, that telling 
Manuel's story, for example, has a kind of redemptive power. And if not for you, then then for whom? And it almost sounds like you're saying for the people who are caught up in the system. <laughs> yeah. I mean, writing this book was equal parts catharsis and catalyst, frankly. For me, these are the stories and I that have arrested, you know, um, me, wrestled me out of sleep in moments. It's jolted me awake. It's been turned over in my mind time and time again. Each of the stories personifies some of the topics that are in our national zeitgeist. And that is intentional in the curation of the stories to choose. And so I am very conscious of wanting people to understand from the perspective of victims, from the perspective of those who are um, alleged defendants, from those who are are in the periphery and those who are suffering collateral consequences to the pursuit of justice. But that's all very much part of our ecosystem of justice. And what I hope people recognize, particularly in the context of immigration policy, for example, is the choices that we make in politics have an intersectionality when it comes to the choices and directives that are carried out in other branches of government. Obviously, the Department of Justice falls under the executive branch and the enforcement of laws, and the nation of laws is created by the legislative branch and obviously interpreted by the judiciary. But each of these you know, three co-equal branches of government that checks and balances the power of another have extraordinary consequences on the ability of another branch to do what is right and fair. And in this context, and you can imagine, you know, Manuel was the victim of a car theft. Imagine, if you will, the circumstance of somebody who's the victim of a sexual assault or the family of a homicide victim or somebody who is denied wages because the employer believes they can exploit somebody who's undocumented and in the shadows. You can imagine the ways in which you could see, well, are we a nation that feels comfortable with the choice being made either to report and risk deportation, for example, because our immigration policy criminalizes the pursuit of a better life? Or are we a nation that recognizes that, look, as prosecutors, we stand on behalf of the people of the United States? We'll have more with Laura Coates after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Laura Coates, senior legal analyst with CNN, a SiriusXM host. We're talking about Coates' experiences as a Black woman federal po- prosecutor working within and for 
the system. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your questions for Laura Coates? Anything that she is saying that is creating a reaction in you? 866-733-6786 is the number to call to share your thoughts and questions. 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. So, Laura, when and why did you decide to become a federal prosecutor? You know, I originally began in private practice in intellectual property litigation with First Amendment and media as my focus. And I really did love the work. And I was probably one of the people who can say I loved being in large law firms. It was a lot of fun to do that work. But I always had a calling to go into civil rights in particular. And when I had an opportunity to join the Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division, enforcing voting rights, I was extraordinarily proud at the opportunity. And I was actually hired under the Bush administration the year of the you know, um, first Obama election. And it was a really interesting time to join the Department of Justice and voting rights in particular. And I had written my senior thesis in college too many years ago to name at this point on um, you know, restoring voting rights for former felons. And you can imagine how well mm. that may have gone over in my interviews with the Bush administration, but I was true to myself even then. Um, but I really did enjoy the work. It's just that I became frustrated with the bureaucracy of um, being in a particular division and working on cases that had a more of a public policy focus and less on the exact tangible aspects of our justice system. And you can imagine that even with Section 5 in force with the formula and Section 2 not yet being rendered anemic by the Supreme Court, it was difficult work even then where people um, wanted desperately to put their thumbs on the scale. Now, my colleagues, of course, I have the utmost respect for the work that they have done and continue to do. But I thought I wanted to have a more tangible role in the justice system. And I, under the same umbrella of the Department of Justice, I moved on to become a assistant United States attorney in Washington, D.C. And what a paradigm shift it was to go from a civil rights attorney within that same department to a criminal prosecutor. Not so much in how I would approach it, but how I was perceived it appeared a foregone conclusion on whose side I was on as a civil rights attorney, that I was going to champion, champion the rights of those who had had their civil rights infringed and tried to, when people tried to marginalize. But as a criminal prosecutor, although I had black and brown victims, it was often viewed as a bit of a betrayal, my very presence, where the stereotypical quote unquote man, a white man would be. And I grappled with that perception and how I could approach the prosecution mm. and still honor civil rights. Can you tell the story of the black female defense attorney who walked up to you while you were eating your lunch to ask you why you were a prosecutor? You know, and for the record, I was minding my own business in the restaurant. <laughs> For the record, I was just trying to have a meal and have a little bit of escapism, as I often do. And I was approached by a Black woman who was a defense counsel. And I write about it in one of the chapters about how the two of us believed we were in precisely the right seat at the right table. She thought that I had the unnerving audacity to say that I was a proponent of civil rights and yet was a prosecutor. And I thought that it was strange that she believed in this fallacy 
that black and brown people could occupy but one role within the criminal justice system, that of defendant or that of defense counsel. And when you really think about the landscape, and there's an interesting t-shirt I often see in Washington, DC around um, the area, and it says, a woman's place is in the House and the Senate Mm -hmm. and the Oval Office, and it goes on. And yet when it comes to race in America, people often believe that you're supposed to occupy one space. And I, we, we wrestled with this issue together um, where I talked about the, the nature of the work of a prosecutor, being in the proactive position to have a seat at the table, to wield power and discretion, to no longer abide by this wrong notion that one could either be a proponent of civil rights or a, or a prosecutor. And, and what does it say about a justice system where the two are never intended to meet when a prosecutor obviously standing up and saying, Laura Coates on behalf of the people of the United States, that necessarily includes the defendant. It includes being a healthy skeptic of officers who may have violated the Fourth Amendment. It includes the, the requirement and the moral requirement, frankly, to provide exculpatory evidence, to honor their civil rights, to abide by due process, to consider the presumption of innocence. All of those things happen at the stage of a prosecutor to charge or not charge. And she um, argued that her more reactive position of responding to those decisions put her in a better position to pursue justice and vindicate. And we we wrestled with this very issue. You did. It was a really fascinating exchange. Um, And I was struck by the fact that you had a very ready answer for her, um, that that most of the victims that you are trying to get justice for are Black uh, victims or people of color. And you also talked about, just as you said, the value of being the decision maker rather than the side that has to try to fight back against someone else's decisions. I do have to say, um, one of the things that made me reflect on, honestly, is just how powerful a prosecutor is. Mm -hmm. And and you have the power to charge and, and to, um, to, you know, say what sentences you think would be fair to to reject plea bargains, things like that. And I, I wonder if you feel like, in that realm and among your colleagues, that that was a power that was wielded responsibly? By some, yes. By others, no. And that is the nature of the diversity of human ethics in many respects. I mean, certainly I had colleagues who I respect a great deal. And I also had colleagues who I don't think were worthy of the representation of a public servant. And that goes to show the idea of the power. I mean, I think people have the impression that most cases are going to be run up the chain of command and that no individual prosecutor would have more power than say the collective. But in reality, the overwhelming number of cases that a prosecutor touches, you might have a supervisor who weighs in on maybe a uh, issue you're having and how to get a particular piece of evidence in or ways to check in routinely, but there is a great deal of autonomy and independence among prosecutors. And because we are human beings who bring with us preconceived notions, conscious and unconscious bias, perhaps some an agenda, perhaps others an ax to grind, that offers a patchwork of the approach to justice as well. And I write about in one chapter of a colleague of mine, a white male colleague, 
who it's called, do you want to see something funny? Where he strove to uh, try to teach me about how one goes about interrogating a black defendant. And it's a chapter that points out just the distinction between people's different approaches and also the assumption that I would try to emulate his behavior. Um, and the reason I think it's important to think about just the power and the patchwork is that if there's not a uniform application in the way you pursue, well, this idea of equal protection or equal application of the law really in and of itself can at times become a fallacy because it's so uneven the way it's done. And, and yet, by being a part of the system and knowing how fungible the government really is, I mean, most of the time they didn't refer to me as coats in the courtroom. It was government, government mm -hmm. so much so that I remember instances when I would, the judge would set a trial date or a status hearing. And I would say, excuse me, your honor, actually, we can't have it on that date. I'm actually due to give birth. That's my due date. And she would say, or he would say, really? Is the government having a baby? I didn't realize the entire government was pregnant and going to be having a baby that day. Is the entire government unavailable? And you sort of get the idea of, I get it. We're so fungible and obviously this is going to happen. But keeping that in mind, you know, the ideas of the way in which we presume it's so fungible, but yet there's the almost islands unto ourselves is cause for some concern and a consideration of how we can make it a more uniform approach. Well, let me go to some calls that are coming in. And of course, that number again, 866-733-6786. Anthony in San Jose. Hi, Anthony. Hello. Um, I would like to uh, ask uh, your guest um, as a prosecutor what her opinion is of the intersection between um, mandatory minimums and plea bargaining and um, the practice of some uh, prosecutors of way overcharging. So how is that led, how, how does that result and affect mass incarceration and what effect does it have on the defendant, on the incarcerated and their families and how, mm -hmm. do, we, how do we change it if, if it needs to be changed? Anthony, thanks. That's a great question. And you're really thinking about the intersection, almost like this Venn diagram of how all of these things are interrelated. And certainly the prosecutor has an extraordinary amount of discretion to charge or not charge cases. And oftentimes, you know, you'll find I've spoken to my colleagues about this over time, but sometimes we're even more proud of the cases we choose not to charge um, than the cases that we have gone forward because it's a demonstration of really being objective in the application of the law. But I can tell you, you know, the decisions to charge and obviously the choices to do so and the level of crime are things that prosecutors have a great deal of discretion over. I mean, felony crimes obviously are done through a grand jury. And so while technically the grand jury is returning an indictment, the prosecutor is guiding them through that entire process. And there's no coincidence of that, you know, old setting joke about it. A prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. It's indeed true. You're essentially having the benefit of leading a grand jury to water and helping it to drink. And that leads, obviously, to the domino effect of the higher the charge and knowing about the weight of the federal government against an individual where no one wants to find themselves on the other side of United States's versus. That's because we know of the benefits of the doubt that are extended to law enforcement and to prosecutors and the like. I mean, how often have we said or heard people say, 
well, you know what? When there's smoke, there's fire. The prosecutor, they wouldn't have charged a crime if they hadn't done something. The mm -hmm. officer wouldn't have arrested them had they not done something. And because of that, you get the benefit of the doubts that seems antithetical to a presumption of innocence, which of course then leads to higher rates of conviction. And with the higher charge, sentencing guidelines tap in. I think there is really a conversation to be had just as I spoke about the idea of there not necessarily being the uniformity in the way that prosecutors approach different cases, the sentencing ranges don't provide clear examples necessarily for even judges to be able to have uniformity in the application. The range itself provides the judges oftentimes with the discretion of how to dole out that punishment, whether it's prison time, a combination of probation and prison time hanging overhead and the like. And you'll find in the justice system, which again, I think is really a legal system aspiring to be a justice system still, that even judges at times with the power they hold find their hands tied. I write about it in a chapter in this very notion where yes. a judge is conflicted about having to be so constrained by the sentencing guidelines that he is rendered ultimately powerless to do what I believe he was, he thinks may have been more appropriate in the land of redemption. There is a chapter, as we're thinking about sentencing, that is so heart-wrenching um, about, about basically a family whose son was killed not wanting the killers, another family's sons, to serve essentially near-life sentences. Could you read a little bit from that chapter for us? Of course. The chapter is called Not Their Son Too. And as you described, this is one of the cases where... Um, it was not my own trial, but I walked into the courtroom trying to make sense of the sentencing being there for another matter. And it's on watching the victim's family beg not to have their son's murderer go to prison. And I, I, I talk about three families were in the courtroom. Those are the two black 24-year-old defendants who were being sentenced for killing a man in a silly dispute over a woman they didn't even know and the family of the 24-year-old Black man they shot. None of the families could stomach the nearly lifetime sentences just doled out by the judge, sentences that likely would amount to an exponentially greater number of years than the ones the defendants had spent on this earth. The defendants panted as each added the number to their own age and realized the bullets they fired had just killed them too. I'd only entered the courtroom moments before. I had come to handle a separate matter in that courtroom when I walked into the judge summarizing the case and explaining the sentences he had just handed down. My emotions were heightened and hearing the wails brought tears to my own eyes as I tried to piece together the scene. Not their son too, the victim's mother cried out in horror. Don't take him too. She choked on her words as she walked toward the mother of one of the defendants slumped in the aisle, wailing uncontrollably. Your honor, please, not their son too, the mother insisted, extending an outstretched arm toward one of the women. My son is gone. Don't take them too. You're killing them too. She looked torn, unsure what to do with the hand at the end of her outstretched arm. It alternated from a finger pointed 
to a hand half recoiled into a fist, to outstretched fingers extended in anguish. Again, Laura Coates' book is Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. One of the things that so struck me at the end of that story and the end of that scene is when everybody typically rises for the judge as the judge is departing, the judge said, don't stand for me today, not Mm. today. And that is just says so much about working within and for a system that has rules that are not always rules that create justice, though we call it a criminal justice system. Um, JT writes, to be a prosecutor and have the confidence to question the injustice of our legal system makes you a truly great person. Your wisdom is so needed and appreciated. Thank you. This other listener writes, what does Coates think should be changed to make the justice system more fair? What do you think? Thank you. Well, thank you for those comments. I really appreciate it. And, um, and I, 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 I want people to know that I had many colleagues who grappled with the same moral conundrums as I did. And I think that's important to realize that also law enforcement felt those same moral conundrums and the um, judges did at times as well. And that to me makes for a better system of healthy skepticism that promotes change from within, particularly those who are in positions of power to wield that influence. Um, When I think about what can change, you know, I I sort of tongue in cheekingly respond. One thing to keep in mind is maybe we ought to do away with this mascot of the Department of Justice, the one that's a blindfolded lady who is holding scales that somehow are even because she's not seeing what's in front of her. And I think in reality, we need to actually see what our system looks like recognize that we are not, unlike the Supreme Court as articulated in the voting cases of Shelby County, we're not in a post-racial world. That race and bias has had a role and infected, frankly, nearly every aspect of our society. And our justice system is no different. And the more we see the truth, the more we can go from being the America we are on paper to who we can be in reality. We're talking with Laura Coates, CNN senior legal analyst, and uh, she's written a book called Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. Stay with us for more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Laura Coates is a senior analyst on CNN. She's written a book about the cases she encountered in her years as a prosecutor for the U.S. Department of Justice. And they bring into stark relief the daily injustices and the operations of our criminal legal system and the ambivalence and conflicts that Coates feels about whether she is advancing justice for criminal victims or complicit in the injustices, often against defendants as well. And you can join the conversation with your questions or comments. For Laura Coates, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. Email us forum at kqed.org. Maddie writes, kudos to Laura Coates for bringing her moral compass to the injustice that can be done in the name of justice in our country. I will definitely read her book. Another listener writes, the Supreme Court just upheld a questionable voting district in Alabama. I'm curious if Coates thinks that the Supreme Court is going to continue its path of being hands-off on voting rights since Congress doesn't seem able to pass a voting rights law. Are we doomed on voting rights? And just quickly, listeners, the U.S. Supreme Court has just restored Alabama voting maps that an appeals court disproportion said disproportionately hurt black voters. The lower court said that the maps should be withdrawn. The Supreme Court reversed this. What does it say, Laura Coates, that that has been the decision by our Supreme Court? What is your response to this listener's question about voting rights in this country in 2022? Well, again, thank you for the comments. And I, you know, I must say that it's particularly disheartening for me, having come from the voting rights section, to watch the clawing back and the regression um, of a pre-1965 era of the Voting Rights Act. And it's not only disheartening because I know the work is so important, but it's also disheartening because I believe in democracy. And I never believe that somebody is entitled to vote for the winner of an election. But I do believe that people ought to have the fair ability to participate equally and meaningfully in a country that says it's made of a government of, for, and by the people. And all of the attempts to claw back voting rights and to have this era look more like 1964 than post-1965 is extraordinary cause for concern. And the Supreme Court has dealt yet another blow, not only because, again, here we are hearing about a case of such extraordinary importance happening essentially during a shadow docket without the benefit of full briefing and an opportunity for oral arguments, which I think can only aid in the valuable discussion that needs to happen for these cases, but also the fact that here we are seeing Section 5 gutted the preclearance formula that was act that was in, in place as a proactive measure to nip in the bud voting related changes that would disenfranchise or seek to disenfranchise people. Right. The and states that had a history of discrimination. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, the idea of just last July, the Supreme Court rendering virtually anemic section two by making it even harder to challenge even laws that have gone into effect that can Seek that can lead to discrimination and disparate impact on communities of color and, and other um, voting minorities, including language minorities. And now here we have yet again, the idea of upholding a, uh, a map that seems to be the definition and part of gerrymandering. Um, I can't understand why the Supreme Court seems to not do itself any favors as to give some insight as to its reasoning and to weigh into issues like this, other than our, as a caller spoke about, you know, 
the justices don't want to wade into political questions. It's one of the things that they, you know, uh, it, it's so bread and butter that they don't want to act as if they're the legislative branch and resolve issues that are better suited for the legislative body. However, I hope they don't try to maintain a sort of laissez-faire or hands-off approach now when it comes to voting, when they have been so invested in recent years in putting their thumb on the scale in ways that to this day have yet to be reversed. And um, I hope that they recognize that the concept of voting rights is not a political issue for which they need to avoid, but one that is part and parcel to any democracy and an effective check and balance on the legislative branch. Who do you hope Biden will nominate to the U.S. Supreme Court? A qualified human being that is also a Black woman. <laughs> That's who I hope. Um, and, you know, and frankly, he has an embarrassment of riches, as I understand it, from the short list that I have viewed over different journalists reporting, um, that each comes with their own set of obvious credentials, but also a diverse perspective from their own professional backgrounds. For example, we have one judge who um, comes from the, the public defender realm and sentencing commission, another a Supreme Court justice, another a district court justice, judge from the South, many others as well, that all would bring a such a wealth of experience. And I do think, although I hear a great deal of chatter about uh, and complaints that President Biden is inviting partiality by being so narrow in his pursuit of a black woman as a nominee. It's a very I diplomatic people, way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, I there you go. I hope people really understand that. Well, did you have the same critique when, say, President Reagan sought a woman when he nominated Sandra Day O'Connor or when George H.W. Bush sought to have a black man be the successor of Thurgood Marshall, albeit ideologically could not be more different, Marshall and, of course, Thomas. Mm -hmm. And even the most recent president, prior to President Biden, outsourcing his decision to the Federalist Society with, this, with, the, with the purpose of having a justice who would have a particular view on a specific case. If we, if we have views on what invites partiality, I hope people are looking at it without being hypocritical, but I also hope they realize that one's race and gender is not going to be predictive of how they will rule. Ask Amy Coney Barrett compared to Justice Ray Justice Ginsburg, whereas again, Marshall to Thomas or anyone else. And um, I do think that the different perspective is what we should be seeking out from the highest court of the land. And a Black woman's perspective is quite unique and distinct given the history of her treatment in this country. So why not have that valuable, rich experience brought to the bench? We're talking with Laura Coates, and you, our listeners, are also joining us with your questions and comments. Laura Coates, a former prosecutor in the Department of Justice. Ron writes, I would like to ask why the justice system allows prosecutors to avoid any reprimand for withholding evidence leading to conviction of innocent people. It seems that our legal system is like a sports contest with all emphasis put on winning and losing and no focus on true justice. We never attempt to benchmark our system against the European systems to bring improvements. Mm. Fascinating. And, and yes, the, the thought that the end justifies the means often um, the, the result of people thinking about justice in terms of a verdict, either guilty or innocent, and that's it. Um, 
I think that first of all, there are ways in which to hold prosecutors accountable. And there is the expectation under what's called the, um, the Brady evidence, which basically says you're required to provide exculpatory evidence to the defendant and counsel at the appropriate time that they're able to mount a viable defense. And there is also the expectation that if you believe that the person is innocent, you should not be prosecuting the case. The problem is, of course, that because it is an imbalanced system where defense is not often privy to all that the prosecutors know, to uncover and unpeel whatever, whatever ethical violation might actually have occurred, putting the onus on defense to find that out or the happenstance of having it revealed makes it very much an honor system, right? A prosecutor willing to come forward or share certain information. Mm -hmm. But when they do not provide that information, there are ramifications in terms of disbarment. And obviously there can also be prosecutorial misconduct allegations and, um, and consequences as well. So there are those things, but I think there could be more guardrails in place um, that ensure compliance with that. And also don't necessarily leave it up to the honor system, so to speak, that we expect people to do the right thing. We hope they do, we want them to do, but it is ironic to think about in a nation of laws, so to speak, where we have laws on the books, not because we expect everyone to violate them, but because they codify what we believe is the right thing or the wrong thing to do. Um, those guardrails in place ought not to offend prosecutors either, that if you're doing the right thing, if you are abiding by what's happening, you ought not to be offended by the guardrails that are put in place. If that includes more exercise of oversight over the decisions, so be it. Well, Victor writes, how was Manuel's case resolved? Was the gentleman deported? If he was, did the case go to trial before or after he was deported? Reminds me of the case reported in the Examiner yesterday in which an investigator in the San Francisco DA's office failed to stand up to her colleague's pressure to act in ways she knew and felt was wrong. Mm. I'm not familiar with that particular case, but it sounds like um, quite a disappointment and one that I'm sure led to some serious consequences um, ultimately, ICE was contacted. Ultimately, he was arrested and put into um, the, the, the vehicles of immediate deportation. He tried to seek what a type of visa or type of uh, ability to remain in the country if you have been in assisting to the government. And um, normally that involves cases where you have been a victim of a very violent crime akin to a sort of refugee asylum status. The office denied that because the nature of the crime, uh, car theft was not violent enough to warrant him getting that particular benefit. Yet and still he cooperated in the prosecution nonetheless. Hmm. And he remained um, actively on the deportation um, path at the time of trial. This listener writes, the author seems so passionate about the law. Is she still practicing? If not, does she miss being a practicing lawyer? Would she go back to practicing? I, I no longer practice law in the traditional sense. I, I practice journalism. <laughs> um, and I practice in the form of, I feel that my information and truth telling is my form of advocacy. And um, Although the media is obviously quite distinct, one being the court of public opinion, one being the court of law, 
there is complete intersectionality in the way. And I try to enjoy the principles that ought to guide a legal class, a legal courtroom, due process and the like, and understanding the law and analogizing and distinguishing and helping people to understand what accountability looks like or ought to look like. I find that I am in the right space in terms of the work I do now. But I got to tell you, I, um, I very much at times I hear about cases that create such a, a visceral reaction within me that I, there are moments I say, God, I wish I was the prosecutor in that case, man, I wish I could be in that courtroom. And then a little birdie or voice on my shoulder goes, yeah, but Laura, if you were the prosecutor in that courtroom, you couldn't say what you really felt about an issue, use the forum differently. And so it's one of those moments of realizing that um, I, I believe I made the right decision, but it's one I grappled with. Was I better in the better working from within to be a civil rights proponent and seek accountability and, and champion um, on behalf of, of victims? Or should I remove the muzzle and help people to understand what truly goes on? I, I chose the removing of the muzzle and um, I have not yet looked back. We're talking with Laura Coates, Senior Legal Analyst with CNN, the series XM host. Her new book is Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Your your commitment with the Department of Justice the, the as a federal prosecutor, a federal criminal prosecutor was four years, and that's exactly how long you stayed. Um, as I think about you talking about this stage in your life now and the impact that you're having, I am thinking a lot about the fact that you really do share in your book that that time took a major toll on you. Mm. Can you describe the kind of toll that it took on you and and why when you talk about yourself as a prosecutor, you don't just say you're a black woman prosecutor, you always say you're a mother. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I chose these stories in curating and these in particular, and they happen to coincide the overwhelming of them of when I was pregnant with my children. I have I have back to backs where a stair step baby is only about 18 months in between. Mm -hmm. And um, they're seven and nine years old now, but I wanted my children to sort of understand in part what I was figuratively carrying while I was literally carrying them. And when I talk to them about justice or when they hear me with my commentary um, and ask questions about why the world is the way it is, I wanted them to better understand not only who their mother is, but who their mother was not at times. Um, and I want them to see me as a human being. And um, being a mother changed a great deal of how I approached the law. I think prior to becoming a mother, I was able to compartmentalize and have the emotional distance space of being able to not approach things robotically, but compartmentalize in a way that I could see things in a more black and white rather than nuanced way. When I became a mother, there was almost an empathy valve that had been open before, but was now much wider. Yes. And, um, and seeing the people, not only the victims, but the defendants and everyone in between as somebody's child and thinking about how I wanted the world to be different by the time my child was of a certain age. And um, it, it took a toll because there were moments, and I, I write about it in the book, where I experienced secondary trauma. You, you can't yes. be a human being and 
you know, hear about the stories and become so invested and um, get to know the victims and advocate as strongly as you need to without it penetrating. And that was really the case for me. And it, it comes in waves, even to this day, where at times I'll be jolted out of sleep or writing this book, I found myself reliving certain aspects again, the, the beautiful moments and the very difficult moments. And I would be crying through something, right? And my, my uh, husband would say, I think you should take a break. And my son would say, what's wrong? And my daughter would say, I think mommy's remembering again, mm. because I think they were in tune with just what it feels like. But I'm, I'm, there are days I wish I could go back to being sort of naive about the, and, and having an esoteric approach and intellectual approach to the law. Yes. But I'm so glad that I see it for what it is. And I understand it from a very different perspective and that I'm in a position to help others do the same. Well, Stephen tweets, great topic on, one, on what justice means in America or should mean. And in hearing you say what you just said about the lens or the multiple lenses with which you look at things now, you have said in interviews, we have a legal system, not a justice system. And I guess I just have to ask you, how do you define justice? What, what is justice? What does it look like? Well, frankly, it's elusive, but it also is so nuanced in, um, in how we perceive it. I think justice has a lot to do with the benefit of the doubt and due process and the presumption of innocence, all these sort of buzz phrases that I think separately and distinctly people think um, can be totally compartmentalized. Yeah. But in reality, I think justice is understanding that everyone deserves the dignity of the presumptions of innocence and that the burdens that we must carry and meet as prosecutors has got to think about and be reconciled with the our, our notion that we represent all of the people, including the defendants in cases. And do I think have, it comes down to ultimately to fairness. It comes down to fairness. Do you have a sense of what it feels like now? Yes, I have a sense, unlike, and I often compare it to sort of being a prosecutor allowed me to go from intellectually knowing to now understanding. I knew intellectually about disparate impact and disproportionate impact and mass incarceration. We all know about it intellectually, but until you actually see a parade of black and brown defendants as if, and we know they do not, as if they have a monopoly on crimes and black and brown defendants who are not um, championed on behalf of the way that those who are more privileged might feel. When you see the reality of race and bias in our system, you begin to understand, and I hope we all will soon. Laura Coates, thank you so much. Thank you. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.